0: I honestly think that life's the best teacher, better than an MBA. And so I I think get lots of different experiences, try and work in different functions, whatever that means in an individual's context, and then work out where you want to be and, and, and apply all those lessons.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader you can possibly be. It's my gift to you, and it's completely free. In today's episode, which is an absolute cracker, we are talking about building great teams, culture, overcoming adversity, and what it's like to row the North Atlantic Ocean with Peter Fletcher. Pete is an incredibly humble and inspirational man. So I know you're absolutely going to love this episode. Specifically, though, in this episode, you will learn the leadership lessons drawn from Peter's North Atlantic row and their practical application for your team or organization. You will learn strategies for developing a collective mindset and culture within your organisation and really fostering a sense of unity amongst your people. We're exploring the secrets to building an extraordinary level of teamwork, including the teamship focus that enhances collaboration. We're looking at the importance of celebrating success and effective ways to do it within your team and organisation, which really came from the final two hours of Pete's North Atlantic Row, when he knew they were going to succeed, but he had a couple of hours on the deck of the boat by himself to savour and take it all in. We also look at some of Peter's incredible stories of overcoming adversity during that role and the crucial role of connection and human relationships in achieving success. And this is illustrated through some personal stories of mine and Pete's about where certainly I got this wrong. Plus, lots, lots more. That is enough of an introduction, though, from me. So let's dive right in to this week's episode and my interview with Pete Fletcher. Pete, can you start off by telling us about your first memorable leadership experience in the workplace, like good or bad, and how that has gone on to shape
0: you as a leader and influence your own leadership style? Yeah, sure thing, Ben. You know, it's a bit of a strange one. I was just 18 years old and actually still in school, and I was at a kind of rugby school, rugby playing school, and I was sort of had the honor of being the um, the first 15 captain and we had a great win early in the season against, you know, a really big school and, and we all went out and celebrated of course. So, but what I learned that day is, you know, in fact, it was the following day I kind of got called into the um, headmaster's um, study and he tore some sort of strips off me. And I certainly learned that day that when something goes wrong, if you're the leader, like it or not, you you've got to kind of own it. So I've actually sort of since sort of reflect on that. And it's kind of when I think, especially when things go wrong, that you have to own it most. And
1: how have you carried that through to how you you operate now? Is it just that piece around owning the failures as well as the wins? Or is there other
0: stuff you, you took forward from that? let's just say none of us are perfect. And um, of course, we, we aspire, you know, we aspire to do all these things that we know we should. But I think that's definitely one, you know, when when things don't go right, you've got to own it, because it is the leader's responsibility to get it right. And I think we as leaders do really know and believe that. And then, of course, on the flip side, when things go well, it's actually a real joy, isn't it, to recognize and celebrate, you know, the accomplishments of others, basically, when the team works really well or when when you get some successes and actually it's always the team success so
1: yeah that reminds me of the famous quote and I think it's from John Wooden the I'm not sure if he was an American football coach and he said something along the lines of when things go badly I did it when things go okay we did it and when things go really well that they did it that's all it takes to get people to win football games. And it's it's so true, right? But it can be hard to act on, I think.
0: Ben, that is the perfect quote for what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> I think uh, that's exactly right. And, you know, again, it's about doing our best and, and probably just trying to take a bit of humility into every um, experience and reflection of each experience, you know? Yeah.
1: And I wonder, Pete, do you think that mindset that you're sharing here can be learned or or how innate do you think it it is the and the reason i ask is if we're in going through our career and we've got some sort of ambition to continually get get promoted and one day be a md ceo of some scale of of organization i I guess there's there's a balance right in that we are we're trying to demonstrate our own competence and what we can deliver because that will many of us think will get us promoted but at the same time if we really want people to to follow us as you've said and as John Wooden said we really need to own those mistakes and when things go well push the the team forward so it's a delicate balancing act isn't it by sort of demonstrating our own competence and achievements whilst not stealing the credit for people and clearly you learned it to a degree based on that experience when you was captain in the first 15. But knowing you as I do, I suspect that was already in you to a degree. So this isn't quite the leadership, nurture, nature question, but what's your view on
0: that, Pete? Well, I think it's a great question. I, I, um, when you were asking, I was thinking about nature, nurture. I mean, just, just to use that analogy, I am absolutely firmly on the nurture side you know I absolutely think that leaders are made not born and you know I think every single experience you have personal interpersonal envi- you know everything contributes to who you are of course and um, so I, yeah I think leaders are, are made not born that day I tell you what I did not walk in expecting that I was going to bear all responsibility for what happened you know but I walked out knowing that that is exactly what I had to do and that was a really good lesson But to answer your question, if you really think about who enables people to step up or to step into bigger or more senior roles or, you know, leadership positions, although anyone can be a leader, you know, but actual explicit leadership positions, it's other leaders. And I think that they have got there because they're good leaders themselves and they understand what it takes to be a leader. In many cases, I would certainly hope so. So I, I think actually... People recognise those qualities, and it's much more about actually displaying them and being a great leader rather than, you know, trying to sort of appear like you're doing all the right things or that you're the right person. I think being the right person is far more important than looking like you're the right person. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Going to go—it's not really off
1: tangent. It's off tangent on some of the questions I, I thought we would discuss, but just then, Pete, when you were saying that they know what it takes to be a leader. Let's explore that then. For for you, what, what does it take to be that good, solid leader that people will follow because they want to, not because they, they have
0: to? Reflecting on leadership qualities is a really important thing, actually. And with that kind of which leaders we admire and all that sort of stuff. And as you say, this is, you know, off the top of my head, really. But some of those qualities, for me, when I think about leadership, and of course, there's lots of definitions, there's lots of different images you can conjure up. But for me, it's almost taking like a diverse group to a sort of shared vision, to, a you know, a shared future. And so, you know, vision, I think, is really important. I think conviction is is crucial. And what I mean by that is, you know, a, a conviction in where we're going to get to and, and to some degree the path we're going to take. Although I think the how is less less leadership than the end destination. I think then a willingness to empower people, well, have that balance between sort of uh, do what, you know, if you're going to ask others to do, you've got to be willing to do it yourself, but also empowering people as well. Yeah, love love that. Pete, on a slightly different tangent,
1: I'm, I'm really interested to, to explore this with you. So you were, I don't know if you still are, the first Australian to row the North Atlantic, right? Which puts you in a pretty small and unique club, I'd, I'd imagine. Before I get into some questions around leadership and teamwork related to that like what on earth made you want to want to do that was it a was it always something you aspired to do was it you read or saw something that inspired you to do it like first of all like where did the idea come from
0: no it was definitely not something I always aspired to do um I, I think it was in some regards, quite opportunistic. I I think that the desire came from, well, in fact, there's probably two things I could point to. One, I have for a long time had a desire to sort of, you know, take risks for risk's sake, but to live a sort of life that with no regrets as it were and part of that came from I was lucky to survive a car accident when I was in my early 20s and that did change my outlook on life a little bit that sort of sense of liberty and such but but actually I think a lot of the sort of you know the foundation came actually from the world challenge uh, ethos the organization that I'm fortunate to run you know that is obviously about you know what experiential learning so what do we learn from we, we work with young people obviously and Ben you know you're your background as well you'll relate to this wholeheartedly but of course it was really from the world challenge ethos of wondering what I'm you know what I what would I learn from this challenge and from being out of my comfort zone.
1: This is more a question for for me so it's a slightly selfish question in some ways what was your if you don't mind sharing family circumstances at the time kind of were you married at that point? Did you have kids yet at that point? So I'm always curious right that's there is a clearly an element of of risk with doing some sort of challenge like that so yeah what what did that look like?
0: married with three young girls, and the follow up question I could probably anticipate you know really really my wife's wonderful, really understanding, but although she's not a kind of real adventurer herself she she's got that sort of adventurous mindset and spirit where you know, whether or not it's emigrating from the UK to Australia or, you know, just wanting to sort of live that sort of life. So I think she actually probably, I think, understood it a lot more than other people did in a way. But I think it it obviously put a lot of pressure on her, it, you know, in a way, perhaps more pressure on her than on me because she kind of had to live with the, you know what I mean, the sort of reality of why is he doing it? And, you know, maybe what if he doesn't, uh, it doesn't go as well as it should, you know?
1: Yeah, and I think the bigger challenge with big sort of events and endurance events like that that people don't always necessarily appreciate. And it was certainly my experience when I rode the Tour de France for charities. It's not so much the actual event or challenge, is it? But it's the all the time and effort that goes into the the training that can, I guess, burden is the right word, put a burden on sort of family life and and the rest of your life. Right? That's the it's not just however many weeks i don't know how many weeks it takes to row the north atlantic but it's not just the time involved to do that is it where we're sort of asking for the the support and
0: the, i don't know the forgiveness from our family exactly you're spot on and you're speaking from experience you know I think the preparation for any adventure is like 90% of it 95% of it I think there's an element of truth in that and I think it's also the fact that you sort of mismanage expectations in the preparation you know people know you're going to be away for the period you're, you're actually on the water or on the bike or whatever it might be but you know they don't expect for the year prior you're going to be rebuilding the boat or you're going to be training or you're going to be whatever whatever it is you know yeah and Pete, you said the challenge was partly born
1: out of the world challenge ethos of experiential learning, and this is a big question because there was probably a lot, I suspect, but maybe if we focus it in terms of leadership and teamwork but but we don't have to what what were some of i guess the most significant and perhaps enduring things that you learn from from the experience and from the whole experience right as
0: we're saying the training and the the actual row itself I can talk into a little bit into the the teamwork and leadership if you like because I did sort of I think have some learnings I mean I was very fortunate I did it as a um, pair a rowing pair so I had a, had my friend Tom Hudson who was really really an incredible person really capable but we were also very different Although although we've got some, you know, real consistency around our values and some of the, you know, the foundational stuff, we've actually got very different skill sets. And that was a huge blessing. So, you know, the sort of classic, you know, you need a diverse team was absolutely a lesson that was reinforced on the ocean. And just to sort of give an example, he he's got a sort of engineering style mind and I don't at all. So he was the fixer. You know, he could fix stuff. And get it get you know our solo went down, he got it working, the water maker goes down, he was able to get it working, our steering went down after four days, and you know we had to build a traditional foot steering system out of like you know you'd laugh if I showed you what it was made from, and he did all that, and then I was probably a little bit more understanding of the ocean and um maybe how to get the best out of the boat and perhaps adverse weather and storms and how to manage that sort of thing. So we were complementary there. And, and so I think the overall capability was, was really sound. But then the other thing I'd just say about teamwork is, you know, there's a skill set and then there's a sort of mindset. And I think I had underestimated the importance of mindset in success and in teams and um, we spent more time working on our culture you know I sort of think of culture now really as a collective mindset um, almost like capability might be a kind of collective skill sets in an organization I sort of think as culture as your collective mindset and I think we spent far more time working on our culture even on the boat between two people than we did our capability and that's even acknowledging the fact that the capability part was huge you know we're rowing around the clock, we had to deal with hurricane, we had to, you know, deal with, you know, all sorts of different things that were just brand new, the culture piece was still far bigger. So what do I do with that now? I just think a bit about, you know, we think about culture and in certain different ways, but I think a lot more about mindset within that culture, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, can you expand on that a little little bit, Pete, kind of what you mean by mindset within culture? And for anybody, Listening, what is sort of something they could practically take, sort of based on your experience in the boat, and I'm sure how you've carried that into the
0: entire organization at World Challenge? To some degree, motivation is sort of synonymous as well. But I'll give some examples on the boat. You know, we were rowing two and a half hours on, two and a half hours off around the clock. And the hardest shifts, although I liked them, were the night shifts. So you might not have even slept an hour. Um, You might not have slept at all. But you just got to get yourself back up and back on the rowing seat while the other one takes some time out. And you know, we would do things like leave a hot flask on deck so that when you came up, you could, you, you know, what I mean, for Tom, his thing was coffee, and I would, I, I'm a, I'm a sort of a tea guy, but you know, you could make a, a hot drink, or we would, you know, purposely give the person something to think about, like a question of, I want to know your top ten of X, or you know, just thinking about how to get uh, that help that person through the next shift and the next, you know, hour, two hours, and I think in an organization, you know when I think about mindset, I think about, uh, I'm really thinking about, okay, where, where is really your culture is a collection of, of all the individual mindsets in the organization. So are they geared for success? Are they, do they believe in the vision and the journey? Do they know what they've got to do? Do they know where they fit in? Are they motivated to do it? And how can we work together as individuals to make it that little bit easier for the the person next door, that little bit easier for the team that you're liaising with or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I think there's a few things we do. We also, I suppose, just on that front, celebrating success is pretty key, you know, to keep that motivation alive. We have a recognition scheme peer nominated. So every week we have an all team meeting where every single person in the organization nominates somebody for something that they've done, you know, going above and beyond or to help them out or whatever it might be. And that's amazing because as a sort of leader, you sit there and you hear, you you just hum, I feel humbled every, every week by hearing one person celebrate or thank somebody else in the organization on the call in front of everybody. And not only is the recognition so valuable, but also you learn a hell of a lot about what's going on in the organization, because they're all things you just wouldn't otherwise hear. So I I really love that. Perhaps that's one thing that people could take away.
1: I want to come back to this piece around celebrating success and and recognition in just a second, Pete. And I also want to go back to what you was just saying around mindset and teamwork, because completely by chance, actually, in the last few podcast episodes, it's ended up being a bit of a, a theme that we're we're talking about. And it's really interesting that you gave that example of sort of when you're doing your shift, you're also thinking about, well, what can I do to help the next person be as as good as they can be? And this is particularly poignant for me because just this weekend, as we're recording this weekend past, I've just been back to the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, where I did my Training to be an officer in the army because one of my my friends is is posted there at the minute, and it just straight away brings back all the, the memories, and you feel slightly intimidated even being being back in the grounds. But one of the things I've started to realise is Sandhurst is famous for for leadership training, but actually, as much as it teaches you how to be a leader, it teaches you how to be an amazing team player, and it's almost more inadvertent and sort of under the radar that they teach you that, but. Essentially very quickly you start to realise that sort of your individual success, i.e. passing the course, is reliant on the other twenty nine men or women who are in in your platoon because you're all going to be taking it in turns at some stage to be in a in a leadership position. So you can either be a good team player and try and make their job easier, make them look look good, or to excuse my language, you can be a bit of a bit of a dick. But If you're the latter, then when it's your turn, they're not going to be particularly inclined to to help you. So you do get into this mindset of doing everything you possibly can to support the people around you and make them the best they can be and it's funny like in the army it almost becomes this fear about like not being jack and by jack i mean like i'm all right jack i'll just look look after myself and it and it sticks with you because i was at an awards ceremony for my daughter's swim club which was hosted in in the school and like we had to leave the school dining room tidy because we'd hired it from the school and i looked around at the end there was like one woman who grabbed the broom and started sweeping and immediately I, i just did the same now it's not not a Criticism or judgment, like ninety-eight percent of the other parents, just got up and left, and there's two or three of us kind of sweeping, sweep tidying it up. It, it just gets ingrained in you. But yeah, I sometimes wonder if there's more we can do in the business world to sort of teach teamwork and, and teamship because you don't quite have the same experiences that really lead you to to focus on it in the in the corporate world. So I'm not sure there's particularly a question in there Pete but like what comes up for you as we as we're exploring this concept.
0: I love hearing that story about Sandhurst and I think although I never had the fortune of going to Sandhurst or being in the army at all I'm sort of envious actually of of you saying that because I can sort of feel it. For me it's what comes up is reciprocation. It only needs one person to start to do those things and but if the right people are in the organization and they recognize it then you know good deeds are reciprocated so i think it's about selection you know selecting the right people people that have this sort of natural inclination to work like that. And then just trying to, you know, you need a trigger, don't you? You need to, and and then it's celebrating those behaviours and looking for a way to recognise them and and celebrate them out in the open. And then obviously when things undermine them, then you've got to nip them in the bud quickly.
1: And then circling back to your point around sort of recognition, Pete, and pausing to celebrate success. In preparing for today's conversation, I was doing a bit of internet research slash stalking on you, and I stumbled across a few videos of you talking about the row. One of the things that really struck me was there was a point when you knew you had or you absolutely would complete the row, but you hadn't yet touched dry land, and you was very conscious of trying to sort of pause and really take in the, the achievement and the moment, which I think is wonderful. And again, in, in the workplace, it's something that we can easily neglect, right? Because we hit a target, we have a win. There's always another target to hit or another, another challenge to, to solve. And I see this all the time, just skipping from one goal to the next or one crisis to the next and never actually pausing to say, do you know what? This is really good. And I think even better than that is pausing to review some of those those wins, because, again, we tend to review when things go go badly. But how often do we learn the lessons of success so we can hopefully hopefully repeat it? So I guess two questions. I'd just love to hear a little bit more about those last couple of hours of, of the row. And then again, for people listening, sort of what are some things that you think they can practically take and use in their organizations to I guess it's about
0: building the culture, building that collective mindset, right? Yeah, thanks for asking that, Ben. It's such a vivid memory for me. I suppose just to sort of convey, try and convey it a little bit, you know, it, it, the row was not easy. We 98 days on the ocean. <laughs> Is that the world's biggest understatement? The row was not easy. <laughs> that says a lot about your character, Pete. <laughs> well, to be honest, Ben, we, we made it difficult. <laughs> you know, it could have been a lot easier, but we... We stuffed up enough things that we made it difficult. We rebuilt an old timber rowing boat. We decided we'd make our own food on a ketogenic diet, so high-fat food that's hard to dehydrate. Oh, we didn't literally make it, but we had someone make it because we rebuilt the boat. We, we you know, ourselves with a boat builder. We had massive gear failure we lost 40% of our food spoiled so we were rationed for 7 weeks the the water maker kit was almost packing up so there's too much salt in the water we were drinking you know there was all sorts of things that made it incredibly difficult and um so we kind of got over the line of five degrees west and then the following day I saw land actually we'd had a food drop as we crossed the line or after we crossed the line from the navy right which was um, they're actually out on exercise so it wasn't like they came out to give us a food drop but it was ah, uh, gee wow we were so grateful. They must have been the first people you'd seen right? They, they were yeah they were and uh, they're in a in a rib you know four of them and we kind of got including the chef and, and, you know, they were kind of, I don't know, I suppose, you, you know, you get dropped out on a rib. They're probably not out on a rib every day, many miles from land. And we were there just to, sort of taking the food over the rail, just so grateful. But, but the point is Tom, <laughs> that, there was about four days worth of food and Tom Pollock, well, I, I had some too, but Tom had the lion's share in about 19 hours gone. So he, he was, he was pretty sick because he had he'd taken a real bullet for the team in a way because he had, drunk more of the, the water that was too salty. We had a certain amount of ballast water that we could sort of mix and all the rest of it. And he, he was more physically resilient than I was at that stage. So I was drinking more of that ballast water and he was drinking more of the salt water. He, he then ate so much of the food and he was almost in a really bad state. So we, we, I wasn't sure when we got to land, you know, I, I, I would wasn't sure exactly what medical care he might need, but he was, what it meant, the reason I'm telling you is because I was on deck on my own. And um, for that penultimate day, and we had an amazing following wind. So I was rowing, effortless rowing after what we'd done and full belly, just trying to get us in as quick as we could and beautiful sunshine. Right. So it was really a rare, rare, rare conditions. But we'd crossed the line and there was that sort of sense of achievement. And then basically I saw land that afternoon and it was just you know, I kind of got goosebumps actually thinking about it, but it was just unbelievable. So, so have I, listening <laughs> to you. It was amazing, right? Because we knew we'd made it and you know, I knew my wife and kids were there in Cornwall. And the reason I sort of share that story like that is because it was very special. And it was the time, kind of time, was a brief moment where I was able to sort of say for a few hours, yeah, wow, you know, you should enjoy this moment. And, and, I, and I really tried to do that. But the point is, I suppose, you know, you, to your question, how do, you t- how do you take that into life? Uh, and I think you you actually mentioned, you know, going from crisis to crisis or or from goal to goal. And I think it can be either or in a way. What I have done at certain times and what I try to do is, you know, that was land I saw that day, right? And it's the very land that is underneath my chair right now and and that, you know, that we walk on every day and, and, and step out of bed into, right, onto. And so... I actually, it sounds really a bit, perhaps a bit abstract, but I, I sometimes literally just look at the ground and, and, and remember that moment of seeing land. And I can literally, when I do it, feel my heart rate slow and the emo- some of the emotions kind of come back and maybe I even smile, you know. And and, and I think what it does, it sort of takes me back to, that, back to that place, out of the crisis or out of the striving for the next goal to just, do you know what I mean, you know, just just really appreciate gratitude for not just not just the land on that day, but everything in, in life and everything that the land represents, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I, I, that, that's amazing, Pete. And actually, I think that's something that's really relevant that kind of we can all take and use, whether we're, we're a leader or not. And kind of on that one, right, I think I subscribe to the same view as you, that kind of we're, we're, we can all be a leader regardless of, of title. But my, my point is, we all get stressed and 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 triggered right at various points during the the working day or or the working week and one of the things I often talk about sort of from the world of neuro-linguistic programming is having some sort of anchor or or trigger that causes you to step out of the moment and and reset and just from your experience and then just looking at the ground or or touching the ground is an incredible anchor right because it brings back those sort of positive emotions from that that moment and changes changes the heart rate and we can all we've all probably well not probably we all have got some sort of really powerful vivid experience when we was at our happiest calmest that we can try and take ourselves back to in those moments just to to reset when we need to so that's that's super powerful
0: yeah well said I think that's exactly what it's like and so much so much of it I think life happens. It all happens between the ears, doesn't it? So if you can get some kind of control and intention in your mind, mindset and subconscious, then it really changes the game. Yeah, absolutely. And Pete, you've given loads of talks about
1: your adventure there. What is one question that no one has ever asked you, but you really wish, wish they had?
0: You know, i tell you one thing I, I like to share, and that is some people maybe expect, but I think a lot of people perhaps don't, is just the extent of the wildlife that we experienced and, you know, the beauty of nature. <laughs> you know, I, I you, you might sort of think, oh, well, kind of going across the top of an ocean, well, you know, how much do you see? Well, we saw, it was tremendous. I mean, we, we, we saw, and people are always interested in, great. you know, did you see a great white? Yeah. You know, we saw sharks up close and we saw mum and bub whale shark come like a foot or two below the right underneath the boat. We saw countless whales. You know, there was one day and it was a very rare day. Ocean was completely still and there was a there was a really dense uh, sea fog because it was so still there was no air moving. And we heard this sort of low rumbling sound, and, and we were sort of petrified that because we'd actually rolled the boat previously, and the electrics had gone down, and, and we were a bit worried that the AIS, which is like your little radar which shows boats in the in the in the area, was down. And so we were worried that the that the low rumbling noise that we could hear in the fog was was perhaps a, a tanker or something. Anyway, the the fog sort of started to clear after, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes and we start to see dolphins. And eventually all you could see, it it was phenomenal, was just countless dolphins across the horizon, literally on the horizon, almost going, you know, feeding in unison from sort of right to left across the horizon. And that was the sound. It, It was honestly a spectacle that I would never have imagined or I've never seen on TV or, you know. We swam with dolphins that day, celebrating a thousand nautical miles from land uh, from New York. And yeah, you, we didn't swim very much. I mean, it was sort of fairly, there's too much water moving around most of the time. But yeah, so so the nature probably, Ben, you know what I mean? It was just, Yeah. it was pretty
1: breathtaking. And isn't it strange that as you're talking about nature, I can hear the birds in the back of your garden. <laughs>
0: Well, that's cool. Uh, I like that. I actually closed the window, Ben, because I didn't want to, you know what I mean? Sound like I was in a blooming bird, Avery, or anything like that. But <laughs> there we are.
1: There, yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> good, 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 good.
0: <laughs> Pete, one final
1: question linked to your row. I think it's interesting. However, whenever we sort of go through some sort of hardship or an extreme physical challenge, many of us will vow never to take certain things for for granted again like when i came back from from iraq i said i'll never take a sort of warm hot shower for granted again and and various things like that what was something you vowed never to take for for granted again and have you stayed true
0: to that vow that you made yourself that's a very insightful question so thank you yes and no You human yeah inevitable, no, because we got so hungry that food was one of those things that we saw we'd never take for granted, and uh, I mean, Tom would have lost twenty five kilograms, uh, yeah, I was probably not quite that bad, but some way behind him and and um but yeah, of course, take for granted completely, but it did take me a long time to start taking it for granted again because I remember for about. A good year I pretty much didn't go anywhere without food in my pocket (laughs) Um, it was quite strange yeah I I know that sounds bizarre but I truly truly did so food was one probably sleep another one and uh, you know totally taken for granted and I definitely said I promised myself I wouldn't you know but the one that I think I've been better at but not perfect is you know the 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 thing I kept coming back to, and I wonder if it was the same for you when you were in Iraq or or el- you know possibly elsewhere, was the relationships with your immediate family. I thought about my girls all the time, every day, and and. I think I sort of swore to myself that I would never take my relationship with them for granted, you know, and try and preserve it and prioritize my relationship with them above other things about above being right above getting my way, (laughs) you know, and I think as a parent, you have to do your parenting. Do you know what I mean? You're you're never going to always be liked, be like a leader, really. But but I think I did hear some wisdom once around prioritize your relationship with them, because if you lose that, you lose any influence you can ever exert on them anyway and any joy from the relationship so yeah that's one that i've tried to be better at if you know what i mean tried not to take for granted yeah i i think you're spot
1: on there pete like the last 18 months for me personally and i've spoken about this a bit on various podcast episodes been through some sort of real challenges and had some sort of low low moments sort of experienced quite a lot of um loss and grief and I partly through as well put in so much into kind of my business and trying to be a great dad and it happened slowly I gradually started to lose connection with lots of kind of friends and stopped investing time in some of the 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 other relationships and and it's strange I don't know if this is a a human thing more of a, a male thing but the more time that passed where I wasn't connected to some really good friends it started to seem harder for me to then pick up the phone and and, and talk to them again and I say luckily I, I caught it just in time In in some ways losing my best friend to suicide was a was a trigger to to do that so in some ways it it, it wasn't lucky but yeah my, my point in sharing that is kind of I've been a real I guess turning point in life where I really start to to realize that the stuff that is important is relationships and connection I think it's what it is to, to to be human and if you look at all of the research from the Harvard longevity study that's been going on for I think 60 plus years if you look at all of the I think they call them the the blue zones around the world where you have the highest percentage of centenarians the thing that all of that research points to is human connection and 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 relationships so it it is so so important and not just in terms of living a happy healthy life but it it translates directly back to the workplace right and i guess it's really nicely and it circles us back to to your road pete like what got you through it. it was the the connection and the relationship between you and tom no doubt and when we have that we're much more willing to go the extra mile and su- support our colleagues at work right and and it can be so easy not to prioritize relationships cause there's always tasks to do right
0: yeah. God, well, again, thanks to you for sharing that. And Ben, I'm so sorry to hear about you. Desperately sorry to hear about your friend, you know, your best mate. And uh, it's very, very sad to hear it. And, and I think what you've just said is ever so true. Like what matters at the end of the day and at the end of it all is how you make people feel, isn't it? It's relationships and your part in them, I suppose. I think I'm probably a fairly focused individual who, you know, hasn't always been brilliant with friend relationships, for example, you know, especially moving across the other side of the world from the UK and and all the rest of it. I, I, you know, there are lots of friendships or a few important friendships that I haven't maintained as well as I should have or could have. And, you know, my natural bias is probably to, you know, the people that are in, you know, nearby or that I've have shared interests with at that moment or in that, you know, in th- this year of my life or whatever, rather than perhaps always trying to be there for people that you go a long way back with. I think I'm probably at that point now, Ben, we're a similar age and um, I'm at that point where I, I sort of reflect on those things a little bit more now as well. And so, you're sort of saying, is it a male thing? Is it an age thing? Is it a, you know, I think it's all of those things. And the importance of relationships in the workplace cannot be overstated. You know, there's a brilliant book, Power Score. I can't remember exactly the author, authors, but really talking about people, relationship, and priorities in one order or the other. And, and the fact is your power score comes from multiplying your score out of 10 uh, on each of those things. So relationships are literally as important as the people you've got and the priorities that you have. I only read that book once, but it's stuck with me because I think it's it's yeah again speaks in the power of relationships.
1: Pete, I've got a new tradition on the podcast in that um, always closing with the same question, and that is, what would you say is the best mistake that you've ever made?
0: There was one on the road that I'd love to share. Oh, my goodness. I mean, this was so stupid. Bearing that we needed to take to row from New York to London was 70 degrees, so east, northeast. And we, we weren't, didn't have interactive weather. We didn't have anything like that. We didn't have any data. We were just going for it. But we somehow thought we were going to row south to try and get into the Gulf Stream. We thought it was about a day's rowing away. So we, we rowed south when we should have been rowing east, northeast for a day. Didn't get to the stream. Thought we were close. We were absolutely exhausted. And we were like, oh, we should probably just turn around and row to the UK. And we didn't. We kept going. And we were just almost killing ourselves rowing together, which is a, you never do that. That's like the, just absolute idiocy because you, you know, once you're both tired, then nothing happens. So we wrote, we wrote for four and a half days and we didn't find the Gulf Stream. And then we just stopped and it was a sunset and... It was just an unbelievable sunset. It was a still ocean. And we just sat there and we just couldn't believe it. And then one of us, I can't remember who it was, would have just gone, oh well, first world problems, you know. And we just sort of picked ourselves up as it were. And we start we were looking at the AIS and we zoomed right in. And it was it was to the literally to the minute. It was as soon as we let go of the fact that we'd made this big mistake and it was all stupid, it was our fault and everything else. Our track changed from drifting. We were drifting southwest away from the UK after five days. And our track started tracking round to the south and southeast to the east. And eventually we started drifting towards the UK, the direction that the Gulf Stream would take us. And the speed was just started increasing. And we were like, oh, my God, can you believe it? And we found the Gulf Stream. And the reason I tell it is because the next three or four days were just unbelievable. I mean, we were just flying. for for three or four days and you know average speed we'd been averaging one to two knots and we were averaging six knots in the Gulf Stream we were catching waves we were we hit 17 knots going down a wave and we ended up getting the Guinness World Record for the furthest road in 24 hours in an old timber rowing boat and that was a big mistake like it was really a stupid thing to do ocean rowing keep it simple you don't have any Really sophisticated steering. You don't have any way to increase your speed other than just row in the direction you need, to, you know, make it the shortest distance possible. But it ended up being the best because we had an incredible time. We saw amazing wildlife in the stream. We, you know, it was an absolute highlight and somehow, yeah, it worked in our favor.
1: Well, I can't help thinking, Pete, as you're telling that story, is it in um, the animated film? Finding Nemo where the Aussie turtles get in the sort of jet stream underwater to carry themselves home or, or away or whatever. I just had that <laughs> that image in my mind as I'm listening to you talk.
0: Jeez, it might be. Well, we were we were Nemo or whoever oh, we were the turtles, honestly. <laughs> it was just the thing that you really realise when you're in a boat with a sail, but definitely in a row boat, the currents in the ocean are just formidable you know, you just, you don't see them, of course, but they are so powerful. And yeah, we learned that the hard way as well. You know, we got a lift from the stream this time, but there were plenty of currents that were adverse as well. But yeah, anyway, there's one, there's one. I, I, I'm perhaps that was a bit of a jovial one, but you know. No, I love it. It's fantastic.
1: Pete, thank you so much for, for your time today. It's interesting that towards the end there, we ended up talking about relationships and, and connection. Now, The thing that listeners won't realize, maybe some might have picked up on it, but we used to work together many, many years ago. It was sort of going back, what, 2006 to 2011, maybe. So it's been really, really lovely to reconnect. It's been fascinating to hear about your row and all of the lessons that's taught you and how you've applied it and how we all all listening to you can apply it to our teams or, or businesses, no matter how big or small they are. So thank you so much for, for your time, sharing your insights and knowledge. Congratulations again on the row and the, the Guinness World Record. And it's been really lovely talking to you again,
0: Pete. Thanks so much, Ben. I, I, it really has been like, well, it has been talking to an old friend. We, we you know, it has felt like we, we were almost doing this over a pint uh, or a cup of tea. And I, yeah, it's been a real joy. So thanks so much for having me, Ben. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you once again for joining Peter and me for this episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. If this conversation has resonated with you and if you've learned something from it, then please share it with your friends and colleagues so that they get the same opportunity. And before you go, do scroll through the podcast episodes and check out the Leaders Kit Bag. This is the new weekly micro edition of my podcast. Each episode is just five or six minutes long and focuses on one very practical leadership tip or tactic to help you be the best leader you can possibly be. So far, we've covered planning and prioritisation, plus how to keep your teams motivated. And once again, when you've listened, please share them with your colleagues so that we can improve the leadership capability in our companies, charities and institutions. After all, The world needs great leaders now more than ever. Until next time, look after yourself. Look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And until next time, lead on.